0: That's really loud! Welcome to the Unsung <laughs> Podcast. I am, of course, one of your three hosts, four hosts this week, Mark Fraser. I'm joined by the usual cadre of <laughs> uh, <laughs>
1: uh Millie, Vanilli and Fusilli. Millie, Vanilli and Fusilli? Is that an Italian slur? Joined us over by Chris Cusack, David John Weaver
0: and we have a guest this week who's been on the show before. Do you want to introduce yourself? Go on.
2: Ah, yeah, I'm, I'm Ferruccio Quercetti from Bologna. You might as well call me Ferro
1: <laughs> for <laughs> reasons <laughs> uh, The man behind Ferro Solo, but also from Italian Garage Rock, Troubadour's
2: Thank you. Yeah,
1: yeah. Correct. Correct. <laughs> I confirm <And>, that. <laughs> and, and a veritable encyclopedia of musical knowledge. Uh, um, a man who has a room in his house that is just a chamber of vinyl secrets. <laughs> 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 I've, I've slept on the floor of that room and you don't get a lot of sleep once you start browsing. It's incredible. <laughs> um, we turned to Ferro for his expertise Uh on a particular choice this week But before we get there, Mark, you got some uh, admin
0: Yeah, so, you know,
1: sometimes we ask people for
0: money Well, I'm doing that again, folks uh, So we've got a <laughs> Patreon, it's uh, patreon.com forward slash unsungpod um, Recently we asked some of our fine, fine contributors If they would give us some feedback on some cool things That we could do to maybe upgrade this show a little bit And we've had some really awesome results, haven't we, Chris?
1: Uh, Yes Uh, So
0: yeah Basically we're asking We're asking for feedback On you know The show And if you do that We'll do some really cool things For you So now We've now got a couple Of really good ideas In the works Which we won't quite um, Won't quite share With the the, the non-paying public As yet But there's some cool stuff Coming down the line Some really embarrassing stuff (laughs) that's the best way to advertise Mark
3: don't tell them about it yeah. <laughs> that's, um, that's, no, just tell them they have to pay to get it yeah have to pay that's what adverts are <laughs> you don't get you don't get a taste of the food on the TV <laughs> are you not meant to tell them what they're meant to pay for
1: well, that's what I was getting you to did, yeah. did. You just <laughs> jumped <laughs> in before <laughs> I could finish my Go, spiel? come and see this movie what movie is it, <laughs> oh, no, man, it. I can't tell you
0: <laughs> but some of the things that you can get are um, a shout out on the show obviously who doesn't want one of them uh, right all the way up to custom made t-shirts of which we have an abundance now mm-hmm. And we're going to make some more really cool ones um, Based on some iconic album covers And we're going to make them ugly with our three faces It's going to be fun <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, We're considering adding a new top tier as well Where you get to give me personally one free stabbing <laughs> and a, <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think it could be a big seller <laughs>
0: So yeah, sign up at net for slash donate to see our Patreon option and to also see our one-off PayPal option if you don't like long-term commitments and just want to chuck us a few pounds for a beer or whatever you can do that too. or whatever your local currency is, could be euros, could be dollars, could be... I don't know any other currencies popped to mind but one of those (laughs)
1: Uh, Do you want want to know an interesting fact Uh, I've had an interesting week filled with interesting correspondence but one thing that got back to me through the grapevine is that there's somebody uh, who happens to be in the same city as me who thinks I'm a member of the Illuminati and has been asking around to see if I can help them uh, track down the other members of the Illuminati in Glasgow Glasgow well, I've got an all
0: seen eye tattooed in my my elbow ditch So does that make me a member of the Illuminati uh, as well?
1: This, this, this isn't a joke And I'm slightly concerned to see If they're going to go so far as to test what colour my blood is But uh, yeah, true story I can't story. think if I have never seen
0: your blood, Chris So the answer to that is it's, can't be unknown <laughs>
1: it's, it's strange, isn't it? I mean, we've been doing this podcast for over three years And I have never bled profusely in front of you I mean, that, that is weird That is really strange <laughs> don't get that on um, knowledge fight the, uh, knowledge fight <laughs> and for wars <laughs> yeah um, anyway enough dilly dallying we've got a man with a beautiful accent here we should utilise it Ferro uh, <laughs> yeah go for it unleash on the world your f- really rather fantastic choice uh, of record for this week
2: Oh, thanks. I mean, it was pretty easy because it's one of my personal obsessions, I, especially because it's such an underrated and unsung <laughs> uh, band and album. I'm uh, talking about Dayton, Ohio's Brainiac, uh, their third album from 1996 called His and Pricks Static Couture. I mean, one of the most difficult uh, <laughs> albums to announce and present because of its title, and uh, to me, it's, it's it's one of my most formative albums when it comes to um, the records that have been like contemporary to my experience as a as a music listener and uh, as a musician because it's one of those those records that came out while i was starting my my, my band for instance you mentioned my band cut and uh, uh, i can really you know you know sometimes when you talk about your influences you kind of Hope, like it was almost like wishful thinking. I wish you mentioned maybe no, 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 the, the Stooges and the velvet on the ground, and you wish you'd be influenced by the Stooges and the velvet Underground, the ground. I don't know. In this case, I can tell, I can say the brainiac were. Uh, really were an influence on us because, you know, they kind of summarized a lot of what we liked and they did it in a very contemporary way. And, um, and unfortunately, I mean, they, they, the, yeah. I mean, I don't know if if I should spoil the story entirely now, but you know, they they were such a short-lived band that, uh, that set the the scene for a lot of things that were going to happen uh, right after their breakup.
1: I will say I'm really glad you chose this album because Brainiac are one of those bands of that era that even been fairly unfamiliar with them. I mean, I knew this stuff in a peripheral way, but you have forced me to become more familiarized with it. And it's a band that had a huge influence on bands that had a more direct influence on me. But they're also just one of those names You know they're one of those names that's out there All the time that you're aware of Being held in really high esteem Uh, But you sometimes just For whatever reason they pass you by at a certain time And you never really get the chance to work back And investigate them so this was a great uh, opportunity for me in that sense. This is one of those episodes where I, I'm glad that I've been forced to finally fill in the blank. Um, another band from Dayton, Ohio, Guided by Voices. I'm sure they're a band I'm going to have to do the same with at some point as well. Um, but yeah, really, really. Thankfully, really they don't have as many albums as Guided by Voices. Oh my god, I know, <laughs> I know, <laughs> oh, fucking it. <laughs> Um, Brainiac, there's so many names that are going to come up in the course of this episode that we'll just be like, oh wow, so that's where that idea came from or that's where this band really developed that sound and, and multiple names are bands we've covered in previous episodes as well and it's they're, they're a really interesting part of the puzzle especially in American and British alternative rock, post-hardcore uh, kind of experimental indie sort of scene
2: Absolutely also, I mean, what really fascinates me about Brainiac is that they were coming out of that Steve Albini influenced, like, noise rock scene of the '90s. But um, they, they they collaborated with Albini a few times, and, and uh, especially, I mean, well, they were the the main producer was Eli Jenny from Girls Against Boys, in their case. Uh, but they, they belong kind of belong to that scene, but. But actually, they were they stood out. Um, they stood out very much because um, there was a certain uh, orthodox way of doing things in the in the in the noise scene in the '90s, and they kind of blew up all that. You know, they kind of started using electronica, for instance, in a very electronics in a very distorted and overblown and. Uh, Completely, almost monstrous way, you know.
4: Mistakes, mistakes. We saw mistakes, and they're going do it again. Yeah,
1: they're there are quite sightgeisty, mo- aren't they?
2: Yeah. It's it's incredible how much they anticipated what's going on now and what's been going on in the last 20 years, I I would say 20, 25 years. And uh, they were one of the first bands to um, look back at the 80s, but not in in a postcard kind of glossy way, but they kind of like dismantled. The, the sound of the '80s, the sound of like the synthesizers, you know, and uh, and kind of destroy. They the, the make me think of like uh, David Cronenberg's Videodrome, you know. They kind of made these things <laughs> yeah, yeah. from from plastic to flesh, you know. They kind of it became organic, organic, and, and also unsettling, <laughs> you know. The way they used these sounds that that normally were supposed to be kind of pleasant or, or just atmospheric you know and they use them to really like violate the ears and, uh, and uh, I mean I mean there's some bits of their music where I wonder if my stereo is, is working correctly like the intro of Is In Prigs for instance is an example this day sometimes i guess what is this really meant to be recorded this way or is this a mistake and uh on the other hand they have super catchy moments in fact in fact they've always been this on the break of getting signed by by a major label as well and also this relationship with the market with the, with the music market was different from the one that other bands from their from the same milieu from the same same underground had uh, yeah
1: See, um, see, to give total, the, the total novices in the audience uh, an example One band that I think really capitalised on the legacy of, of the sound that um, Brainiac were, were creating is The Rapture The Rapture and bands like Hot Hot Heat and these kind of bands that had a very funky, groovy slap to their music, but never strayed away from being indie bands you know, and they they used the electronica but they, did, they didn't they did make it sweet and glistening they made it quite harsh and Brainiac are far more intense than those bands but those bands really took sort of notes from what they did um, I think what we should do is do a very quick timeline of some of the kind of prehistory I will say for people that are listening um, a really great place and just a really good film to investigate in general is a movie called Transmissions After Zero which is a feature length documentary about uh, Brainiac and specifically as well about Tim Taylor, uh, the main guy in the band who even the other band members would would admit was often... Brainiac. You know, really, it was it was really his project and him that was moving it along as much as they did contribute a lot. And Tim's death, untimely death in a car accident, uh, brought the band to a complete shuddering halt. I mean, when he passed, the trauma was so great for the band members that they just the band just fragmented on the spot. Um, actually, apparently, despite the protestations of, of Tim Taylor's dad, who who wanted the band members to continue to sort of Maintain his musical legacy I think uh, they, they, they just couldn't do it But uh, Yeah as you said We were from Dayton In Ohio uh, Tim Taylor uh, Particularly His dad was A, a quite respected Jazz musician like A really really good Jazz guitarist And I believe his mum Was a cellist And so he'd Quite a lot to draw on from his musical background I think he played cello at quite an early age He'd played guitar He'd played keys Um, He, at the age of 16 Was already playing in a jazz band with his dad Including, at one point I believe Writing uh, music for them You know, I think his first song for them was a song called Lazarus Effect and he did it just at the age of 16 Playing with these experienced musicians But, uh after playing in that jazz band, Tim had dabbled with his kind of school friend called uh, Juan... What is it? Juan Ministerio? Juan yeah. Yeah, who... Kind of shorthand known as mono stereo, but they did take part in a funk band at times. Described as like a, a poor man's Red Hot Chili Peppers, that I think Juan, ev- Juan eventually quit and Tim quit with him, saying, "If you're going, I'm going. Let's do something that we can really have control over and 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 steer it in the direction we want to go." to He seems like a perpetual sort of musical contrarian, and this goes all the way through their career, where. You know, for example, if he'd write songs that were just a little bit too catchy and the band complimented them like, oh, Tim, that is a brilliant tune, he would go away for two months and deconstruct it and bring it back so it was a little bit more unlistenable. And <laughs> and throughout his career, this seems to have been a pattern. And um, with Brainiac, right, for, right from the very start, they wanted to do something that was a little bit... Um, it was difficult and it was challenging and it just got progressively more so as it went. The I, I believe that actually... I mean, Tim's very famous for his onstage persona. I mean, like ramming microphones down his throat. It's been very animated, almost been intimidating, being quite aggressive, and then jovial. Like, really, he really specialized in unsettling his audiences. Uh, Feral, did you ever see them live? Not, no, unfortunately, no, no.
2: I, I mean, I, I don't want to say something, something not correct, uh, completely. But I don't think they ever. Did they ever tour Europe
1: extensively? In in the documentary, Stuart from Mogwai, Stuart Braithwaite's in it, and Stuart saw them live, so I would think that would have meant they played here at some point. Okay, um, uh, they, did, that, they did play. They did a Peel session, so they were over in the UK. Yeah, at one point. yeah, they did. Yeah, so that's okay. right. Um, but yeah, that Tim's onstage persona was a really big part of their performance. Um, according to Juan, actually, in, in one of their interviews, he said that really grew out of the fact that the Breeders, who were another, probably the biggest export from Dayton, Ohio, um, the Breeders were doing a show and Brainiac were after the support. And I think there was some sort of hoop they had to jump through where they had to win some battle of the bands, <laughs> some kind of band tournament. And they went into this thing, and, you know, as Juan was saying, the bands we were up against all sounded like Counting Crows and the Goo Goo Dolls and, you know, Brainiac sounded like Brainiac, even in the early days. Um, and so the, the audiences who were obviously there to vote for their friends to get them onto this uh, am- amazingly, you know, important support slot with the breeders for this big show, uh, they, they, they were very hostile with Brainiac. And Tim, right at the start, responded by being incredibly intimidating and sort of volatile on stage to sort of... Push back against this hostile audience, and that just sort of stuck. Is it, uh, Juan said that you know it seemed natural to him to to be that kind of unsettling character, and it let him kind of voice. Because apparently he was quite a quite apparently he was quite a withdrawn character. I mean, Eli Jani talks about Eli janey sorry, talks about um, talks about that in, in the documentary as well. That he was remarkably introverted at times, um, and I think the on stage thing allowed him to sort of give voice to that. Uh, but yeah, this this became a, a really big part of the performances.
2: Yeah, I mean, I remember we toured in the mid '90s with the Quick Cut. In sorry, in the second half of the '90s. Uh, so one of the f- of the first uh, mini tour the mini like short tours <laughs> that we did was with the, the band the Makeup. You know, Ian Svenonius and yep. Michel, and, and uh, they were. <laughs> They talk to to us about 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 Brainiacs, saying, "Oh, this, you know, you should see Brainiacs; like, they're amazing!" Like, and everybody was, was talking about them. We're good friends with this band from Sicily called Uzeda. on touch and go yeah on touch and go and quarter stick records and uh, they I guess they played with them or they saw them play live uh, when they were in the US or uh, and they came back for the US, I remember, and they, they were completely, completely overwhelmed by by Brainiac, by their live show, and they said, "Oh, this band is going to be so huge! This band is amazing! Like this, <laughs> this band is the future!" And uh, everybody was really excited around '95, '96 about Brainiac in the in that circuit. That 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 you know. Uh, <laughs> Area of the underground, which coincided with with labels like Touch and go Quarter stick, you know, Homestead Records, you know, like the noise rock um, realm, <laughs> was was uh, everybody thought that they were going to be the the the, the of this kind of sounds in the in the mainstream. Also, because since the beginning, like the, the, I think the, the first stuff came out from on a, on an independent label, but which was distributed by BMG, I guess. And uh, but nobody held it against them, like even if there was a strong sense of uh maintaining keeping the euro independence uh in that scene and stuff. but everybody so Brainiac has ambassadors somehow of a new way of conceding. Sound in general, uh, not only for the underground but also for the mainstream, they saw the, po- the potential of this band. So everybody was <laughs> going on about, oh, you know, there was a
1: huge buzz. The, the, I think they're seen as being a very much a band's band uh, as well, and that, you know, a, a band that humbles other performers. When you watch the film, you see, you know, the likes of like Cedric Bixler and people like that just, you know, speechless about, you know, in all of them. People like Steve Albini don't often gush about bands, yeah, but, yeah. you know, it really does about them. Uh, so even even in those early days, you know the, the two of them, Juan and Tim, they added a guy called uh, Tyler Trent to the band on drums. He he, he drummed throughout. Uh, he, at the time, he was known as the kid because he was so young looking, but just really fitted in well. And then they were joined initially in the original lineup of the band by Michelle Bodine. Interesting fact about Michelle Bodine, who, who played on their first album. Uh, her grandparents the, on the Bodine side were, were musicians also, and they used to play uh, live at chicken fights. <laughs> Apparently they they used to soundtrack uh, I don't mind, is it chicken fights or cock fights? Maybe she's just the say cock fights But um, yeah, they used to soundtrack uh, Those Gender neutral poultry fights (laughs) Absolutely, yeah, yeah Um, But yeah, I mean, really, really fascinating Even even from those early days uh, I think influences ranged from, you know They openly admit, like Sonic Youth, Bauhaus, Devo, The Cure ACDC, but then over to stuff that was much more hip like Jawbox. Sister, you right uh, but they were also huge fans of Nation of Ulysses, and Nation of Ulysses was apparently what Tim used to say: They, you know, that's what we should be doing, that's that's what we've got to aspire to. Eli Janney's work with Nation of Ulysses was why they eventually decided to try and approach him about recording that first album. And they were quite surprised that he agreed to do it. Um, now, the band were frequently told, you know, you should relocate. You know, you guys have got, as Farrow as says, loads of people are talking about them. But they, they didn't want to leave Dayton. They preferred being from parts unknown. They preferred that idea of being... True to their roots they, they, they talked about How you know All of the best rappers At the time Were, were true to where They came from um, They even brought out A line of merchandise At one point I believe That said It, it had their logo In the front And the back It said Fuck you all We're from Dayton <laughs> But it's, it's a really Interesting approach To the industry in that, And that, that contrarian thing, you know, just you can see it emerging then. Eli Jani actually quoted as saying that the consistent thing about Brainiac and all of their recordings together was that they were intentionally doing things the wrong way. So when Pharaoh was talking about checking your stereo to see if it's working okay when you're listening to their albums it's because they did so many innovative things with the process all the way through, but progressively more so as as they got more confident, just running things through weird pedals and you know strange approaches to how they were how they were setting up that created these really distinctive sounds. Up to the point where people, as as you know, esteemed as Trent Reznor said they were referring to Brainiac EPs for ideas for 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 big records they were bringing out in the early two thousands. That's that's like no small praise. Um, but. Yeah, so that first album, uh, the one recorded with Michelle it uh, was out in 1983. Smack Bunny Baby. Life, skies, Ferro, any thoughts
2: on that? I, I like that album very much, but uh, it's probably their most. Uh, I that, that it's more similar to the noise rock uh, kind of noise rock slash post rock kind of canon. Uh, yeah. Of the, I mean, I love I love that record. I mean, it's it's got some some fantastic tunes, but uh, um, I you know. kind of kind of it was it was I, I discovered it was an afterthought for me because I I I first heard uh, Bonsai Superstar, the second one, uh, but I came back to. To, to smack uh, Bunny Baby afterwards. Uh, it's a great album. I mean, uh, I think uh, it's probably the the, the one that it's kind of predates a few things that were gonna gonna happen in the future with them.
1: The, you're, you're talking about the kind of noise rock circuit at the time, and it does it does reflect that a bit more obviously than the others. <laughs> uh, the full opening track in i fuzzbot. Uh has a it, made it, it comes it straight out the gates like a Sonic Youth song, I think. And um I it, love that ha- song. it almost has like a, a Cobain esque Nirvana yeah. demo vibe to cool. the vocals cool. as well yeah, The vocals, vocals are in. very Cobain on this yeah, a yeah. Lot,
3: I
0: think a lot of this album is grungy to be honest yeah, you know, a lot yeah of like
1: Cobain but more sarcastic yeah yeah. well you know the thing is when you go dig into the kind of Nirvana archives the stuff that's off piste you know the kind of out Cesticide and box set sort of stuff he did a lot of that kind of thing he was a big fan of Jesus Lizard you hear bits and bobs of it in the Cesticide as well and it seems to appear on this um, the second track Rude also just sounds you know really alt-rocky it's decent but it's not revolutionary in the same way that other things would be.
4: Um,
1: There's tracks like Cultural Zero, which I think is a lot nastier and Mm. uglier and heavier. Um, And I think one of the most interesting ones is the track Martian Dance Invasion, because that's the first time you really get elements of Devo pushing through in the music. That said, there's also quite a lot of references to... We've spoken about amphetamine reptile and that kind of era of amphetamine reptile. There's there's quite a lot of that, you know, alt-rock, but not not particularly commercial. You know, things like Subjury and Janitor Joe and stuff like that. You can hear little elements of that kind of stuff. Um, what they would go on to do, as important as it was... I think it's useful for us to contextualise it, Um, at this time there were a lot of people experimenting with varying degrees of success. I think Brainiac brought together elements of what what became known as anti-rock and probably the main band to refer to in that context would be US Maple. They have points where they're fucking with the audience, they're fucking with the song structure, they're fucking with the expectations. Everything about it is quite sort of meta and sort of um, quite self-aware. That's interesting though because you can tell that you're both on the same page. There's there's a contract involved in listening to that kind of music. And on the flip of that, there was also a movement at that time that was taking sort of like post-hardcore that was just emerging, but they were bands like unwound taking that in really interesting directions. Like starting to disassemble the guitars Getting rid of these kind of obvious uses of guitars And making it a lot more sparse And unsettling and a bit more dissonant and so I think Brainiac fit well in that context they were not the only people out there doing that but they were a great synthesis of a number of these influences i'm sure ferro i'm sure you can probably pull another uh, number of bands from that era that were sort of experimenting in a similar way
2: oh yeah yeah first instance, like yeah you mentioned national releases for instance and of course uh well another band that comes to mind when i when i think about brainiac is six finger satellite <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that they kind of, especially in this era, like, uh, early era, Brainiac. They, they, you can trace like some sim- can find some similarities between between Six Finger Satellite and, and, and Brainiac themselves. Uh, but yeah, you, you mentioned you mentioned Jesus Lizard. I mean, the cows. You know all these bands were trying like to, as you said, you, you using guitars to dismantle guitars somehow and um, starting to introduce some, some 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 different elements, especially in the way the songs were, were built and delivered. And you mentioned yeah, you mentioned grunge. You mentioned um, I mean, uh, if you think about uh, I mean, Devo of course, but also about like Human. You, men from uh, the late 80s, early early 90s. I think they were from Seattle. Yeah, I think it was from Seattle. Well, the Northwest, anyway. And, and, uh, uh, yeah. And uh, I think there's a few elements of what Brainiac would uh, do, I mean, or, or were already doing
1: by by their first album in uh, in The human. It's funny you're referencing Seattle bands, because I think a lot of these movements and a lot of these weird sounds develop in isolation in more kind of musically remote places. And I think as much as the Northwest, you know, Pacific Northwest, we've talked about how some weird sounds came out of there because they were able to kind of, you know, have this weird mutation out in the middle of nowhere, uh, to use a fairly topical term. Um, Dayton, Ohio had a, a similar thing, you know, that, that kind of like Midwest sort of, it wasn't LA, it wasn't NYC, it wasn't Washington. They were they were doing a lot of their own things and there was nobody there to scoff at them or tell them they were wrong. And so they were able to kind of keep keep developing this and let it mature. Uh, you mentioned uh, Jesus Lizard there, uh, Pharaoh, and... Around that time, they'd actually, oh, obviously working with Eli Janney that you said was from Girls Against Boys. They toured with Girls Against Boys and Jesus Lizard. What a fucking tour that must have been, first <laughs> yeah. of all. I mean, Eli Janney ja- Eli talks about how being on a bill with two bands as good as Brainiac and Jesus have made Girls Against Boys be as good as they ever were in their career they were just a bit nastier and more determined not to suck you know what I mean because Girls Against Boys were always a bit smoother than, than the bands in yeah. that scene around them and so they had to raise their game and that, that must have been an, an unbelievable tour to see them on Um, But actually, they they ended up getting rid of Michelle just after that tour. Um, It's a pity because you can tell that the band members, including Tim, before he died, felt a lot of regret about the way that was handled. He said that there was tensions on tour and they tended to take it out on her. And a lot of the tensions also grew from the fact that she had quite a decent job that was starting to interfere with her ability to tour. Now, bear in mind that this band at one point were touring nine months out of the year. They really, that was the way they went about their job, was sleeping on floors and really plugging albums in person. So she was actually eventually asked to leave, um... That was pretty acrimonious in the short term Although Michelle says that they After you know, she'd made it clear how hurt she was by it They did patch it up And she's very pleased that they patched it up Given what would go on to happen Juan has said the same He he thinks they were shitty to her And he feels bad about it But he also feels it had to happen For the band to progress Because the fellow they brought in John Schmerzel was an astonishing guitarist. Tim had actually pushed for him uh, because he felt it would enable the band to kind of go in directions that he wanted to go in. Uh, Juan supposedly thought that that might actually be a bad call because he found John just too weird. At first he said that he he visits to his house and stuff. He found it quite off-putting. But yeah... They were they were about to embark on album number two, and as you said, uh, album number two, uh, known as Bonsai Superstar, was quite something. It was a big, big leap forward for the band, yeah. and and John played a big part in making that possible. It's worth noting that Juan had actually originally wanted album number two to be a bit more refined and a bit more polished, and it turned out that Tim Taylor wanted exactly the opposite. <laughs> um, Bonsai Superstar, Ferro, that was, that was obviously your introduction to it. What do you think about that? It's a
2: close call with with these breaks, uh when it comes to my favorite. <laughs> well, they don't just three albums, but but you know, still, you know, I I have a hard time. Say which is my favorite one uh, between between Eastern prigs and and, and Bonsai Superstar. I mean, Bonsai Superstar is basically, uh, yeah, uh, if you want a less refined uh, version of, of the, the uh, of obviously I mean, uh, of or or the opposite. ac <laughs> Priggs is a more refined version of Bonsai Superstar. I think it's the most compromising album they've done. Uh, well, you can really see you can really see how uh, the arrival of, of John Schmursel kind of uh, changed things in the band, especially uh, the way the songs were constructed. Paradoxically, they were not as, I mean... Still guitar centered, but you can see how, how keyboards and, and, other, and other synths and other um, sonic influences were, were starting to, to take the lead. I mean, I, you can see um, they started to emerge in the sound, and uh, uh, I can hear a lot of influences also from late 60s stuff like, uh, uh, well, of course uh Captain Beefart, a lotter and hand people red Crayola.
4: In my pocket, plane. And it takes me where I want to go matter rains
2: the sound really starts to open up I mean there's still a lot of elements of the classic 90s noise but you know uh, it's more Colorful somehow, and at the same time, again more unsettling and disturbing.
1: Uh, do, you, so, do you hear any of the the pop group in them? Because I always thought. Oh, absolutely, was... yeah. I think
4: that.
2: The great thing about Brainiac is that they kind of uh, conveyed a lot of this radical tradition, let's call it traditional, radical vein, uh, popular music, uh, which goes from before, yeah, you mentioned the pop group, MX, 80, uh, Chrome, uh, Devo themselves, uh, Red Crayola, and all these people, you know, <laughs> yeah, Wire, even Wire, why not, Gango 4. But they kind of, uh, or even even stuff like even more extreme stuff like uh, Throbbing Gristle or North Sweet Wound, you know, they have all these dark elements as well. But they, they managed to make it somehow colorful and, and contemporary. And there's also a kind of a shine to it. I don't know. It's, it's a very weird thing because it's extremely gritty and, and uh, extremely disturbing. But at the same time, there's a, almost a glamorous element to it. And this this thing starts to emerge in bonsai superstar, I think. And yeah, you and, know, can
1: I, it's interesting you mentioned like Nurse with wound and throbbing gristle because in bonsai superstar you've got tracks like transmission after zero that are like kind of electronic collages and experiments yeah. and like harsh harsh noise and things yeah. like that, and it's that's really pretty left field. Even, even for a band with their credentials, you know, that you've got entire chunks of this album dedicated to fucking stressing out your listener big yeah, time. Yeah,
2: yeah,
1: or Pere, yeah. Or Pere Ubu, for instance, you know, Pere Ubu. Yeah.
2: I mean, I mean they kind of condense this strain, I don't know how you call it, this vein or tradition of, of cutting-edge cutting edge rock music, I don't know, experimental music, call it what you want, and and, 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 and condense it, you know, in, in albums that are like always like 30, 32, 33 minutes, very short albums, and the songs are extremely compressed. And Bonsai Superstar is, is, is I think, uh, Probably the quintessential uh, example of their sound, you know, because... It's
1: very condensed, yeah, I agree. 34 minutes long or something like that, isn't it? And it's like, I mean, it's also got some of the kind of most famous moments. I mean, things like Hot Metal Dobermans, (laughs) the the amazingly titled first track, which actually has surprisingly interesting lyrics as well, Uh, albeit you can't often hear what he's saying, but, you know, the vocal processing in that really reminds me of um, the Mellow Gold era Beck. And I know Beck would go on to be a really huge fan of this band um, but there's other stuff on that record as well like I, I, I noticed that this was post that tour with Jesus Lizard and Girls Against Boys by the way it's worth mentioning that David Jow openly admits to being intimidated by Tim Taylor and he says it's purely <laughs> because Tim Taylor was so good at what he did that he actually found it quite threatening as a, as a performer regardless of how well Jesus Lizard were doing um, but the Hands of the Genius track, the second one <laughs> Whilst it has some hints of 70s Garage It's got a lot of Jesus Lizard space and energy in it And the the track, I think it's track 6 on it uh, Juicy on a Cadillac Just sounds like a sort of comedy version of Jesus Lizard But in amongst that the, the third one on this is legendary in their canon A track called Fucking With The Altimeter Give
4: me some love Give me some love God save us all Give me some love
1: First of all, there's there are no drums in it. It's just like a palm muted guitar, but this amazing moody innovative approach to it. I think the vocals in it are handled really like Scott McCloud for Girls Against Boys, that whispered sort of vaguely sort of erotic thing. You know, that e, e, was it the ASMR kind of approach. Uh, the chorus, the vocals are sung through a, a house fan. You know, like a like a like a literal fan to get that sort of vibrato effect on it. A
4: dream of physical
1: Um, The the vinyl that plays through it Is a sample from a record That was intended to teach your parakeet How to say phrases So the reason that it's got that woman just repeating Those weird phrases is because this is for teaching Your pet Um, And I think also with that song in particular Bear in mind this is in 1994, you can really hear the influence that had on people like uh, King Buzzo, Buzz Osborne from Melvins, as Melvins were about to go into a period of their career with the likes of Houdini and that, where they would start doing really oddball vocal processed stuff, you know, just, just weird things. I think you could tell that he, I mean, he's in the Brainiac documentary and speaks of them glowingly. And I think, I think you could really tell that he was affected by what they were doing with their sound. Because Melvin's went from being that kind of Lysol, doomy, sort of sludgy thing to being something a lot more quirky and erratic uh, and almost more Brainiac y. Yeah.
2: Now, think about the bands like Liars, for
4: instance. Yeah, the
2: Nobody mentions the influence that quite clearly uh, a band like Brainiac has had on, on a band like Liars, especially their their later stuff after the first album. You know, from yeah, the from second absolutely. album. And uh, you know, so their legacy, I think, is, is still there. I mean, uh, Panda Bear and all that stuff. You know, Animal Collectives too. I think uh, there's a whole side of electronica in contemporary underground music that or independent music that to be comes. Almost directly from from what Brainiac have been doing in the mid 90s. Uh, and it's something that you know it's rarely it's rarely uh, recognized. I mean, uh, I haven't seen. I have to say that I haven't seen the documentary you're mentioning. I mean, I want to see it uh, so bad. Uh, so later on, please let me know where, where I can check it out. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's. I, I'm not surprised that people like King Buzzo are talking in this i mean oh. in this this way about 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 Brainiac, you know very and, very, uh, very warmly man yeah what surprised me back then was that uh, despite being uh, so unsettling and disturbing and they still were under the I mean, multinational corporations they wanted to sign them I found this very strange because they were like much more conventional bands who never stirred the interest of uh, of big labels but on the other hand Brainiac I don't know why probably because there was this buzz around them everybody was talking about them you know it was a time in the mid 90s where you know uh, e, e A and our men from 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 major labels were listening to what people in the underground were saying. There's yeah, there was
1: there's a really good phrase for it: the, the post Nirvana gold rush.
2: Exactly,
1: uh, but you yeah. know. I mean, it's very hard to imagine them on a major on <laughs> label, like, you know,
2: or or like big festivals or, you know, you know in, in the classic rock, mainstream, mainstream environment, you know. But still, I mean, you, you talk, know... The-
1: you're, you're, you're talking about big festivals. The Lollapalooza appearance for Brainiac was a really yeah. big breakthrough moment. Um, but, yeah, I mean, around about this time, I know that Juan's talked about them courting the attention of major labels often just to get really nice hotel rooms on tour uh, and then passing like I mean is it maybe Eli Yanni it's, it's one of the people in the film talks about literally choking on a number of occasions when he heard the offer that the band had passed up on um, around about this period where they would go to the meeting just to get the perks of the meeting, but then they say thanks, but no thanks. We're just gonna, we're just gonna keep going the way we are just now. But I mean, apparently that was quite consistent for yeah. Tim as a person, especially. Apparently, they were um, very close to signing with scope before he died. Well, so if- that's that, that's a whole that's a whole big part of the story yeah. actually that I think we'll go on because there's a lot of truth to that, and I think Juan's also said that Tim had made peace with the idea they were going to move to a major label. He said that was going to happen. They all knew that was going to happen, but they just had to get there first. I mean, the the second record was them finishing a contract with Grass, uh, the the label that put them out, and a label that did a lot for the band. They were really passionate about them. And the the, the owner of Grass is brilliant in the film. She's so enthusiastic, and she says the word genius so many times. Um, but yeah, I mean that 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 notion that they were going to get picked up during this this you know, feeding frenzy by the major labels it made it seem quite inevitable Um, but they also had a bit of an image change around this time, you know, they started going to thrift stores and charity shops as we'd probably call them, and getting really into quite extravagant um, you know, wearing leather jackets with things over the shoulders And wildly coloured 70s wear that they were picking up second hand And they started to inject a lot of personality into their image as well Which I imagine the labels probably loved But they said it was certainly made for some interesting uh, situations Going on tours of, like, the Midwest But dressed like that And going into diners and you know, Idaho And things like that They had some interesting moments and reactions Um... You know it's funny as well Juan described Immediately after uh, They brought out Bonsai Superstar He went home and listened to it And he thought This is fucking terrible This is going to be an absolute disaster Which is the opposite of how he felt After the first album And then when it finally came out the reception was really warm, and he felt felt really relieved. Um, but yeah, they, they, he just thought they'd gone in the wrong direction, and that maybe it was just going to be the end of the band, and that they were just going to disappear, and all the interest was going to dry up. But as you say, far from it. They followed that With we had EP, didn't they? Or was it, it was kind of like a glorified single? It's called International in nineteen ninety five, um, which I mean the main track on that was one called Go Freaks Go, which is pretty famous for fans of the band. This kind of really Gonzo post hardcore tune. <laughs> And the second track, you would come back to your nurse with wound comment. Pharaoh in the kind of mid eighties sort of industrial experimental scene. The second track in that Silver Iodine is just an experimental noise track. Yeah. Which again is just a total, it's a total right turn to throw in material like that. It's so, it's really bold. absolutely
2: yeah that that's the story of uh, the their whole their whole story i mean uh there's this incredibly catchy moments and and then the second after you're totally terrified <laughs> by what you're listening to uh because you you know this' is the kind of sonic nightmares you know and the opposite you know you you're listening to something that seems totally obnoxious and and the second, thirty seconds after you are you're listening to this great melody or or like this Super uh, punk rock, and can chorus. You know, it's an incredible band. I mean, it's, it's never. Uh, I mean, totally unpredictable. And this EP that they did with the uh, international uh, was produced by Kim Dealer and, and it was uh, the first record for Touch and Go, if I, if I if I remember correctly. Because yeah, after after uh, um, their Grass contract. Uh, Finished. They came, they released a few things for Touch and Go, and uh, as as I said, you know, uh, there, there was a, a lot of attention on what bands were doing, and that there was kind of so many people said it's time to take sides, you know, to see if you if you want to stay with the, within the underground or if you want to side with yeah. the major labels. Well, well girl, this, Girls f- Against
1: Boys are a great example of that. Girls Against Boys absolutely met with incredible hostility when they went onto a major.
2: Yeah, because you know everybody, everybody was feeling this kind of attack from from, from the major labels to the world of the underground of the of underground music. You know, on the, in the, after Nirvana, after so, but somehow Brainiac, nobody, nobody held held this against Brainiac. Like everybody was happy that were. Going, <laughs> I mean, I remember there was a good feeling about Brainiac uh, going on a, on a major label.
1: I think it's just because people were amazed. Yeah, exactly,
2: because they had this real troll kind of status, you know, because they were like glamorous looking, as you said, you know, they they adopted this very glamorous look, uh, very um, gender questioning, (laughs) let's call it like that, uh, look. Uh, And at the same time, they were making this obnoxious music. So they had and I remember, you know, strangely enough, nobody was was like kind of very critical of of, of them. Um, if Tim Taylor had survived, they the, the were certainly going to be on Interscope Records. So, uh, you know. But Marty was critical of them. I was I was amazed by the fact that Brainiac was so loved and kind of protected, <laughs> in, in, uh, under this respect, which didn't happen to other bands. You mentioned the Girls Against Boys. You know, uh, Jesus Lizard themselves when when they when they moved on to a major label. They, you know, they were very much criticized. But you know. I remember there was a good feeling about everything. Probably because they were such trolls, you know, and, and probably because, you know, everybody wanted to see what was going to happen with this band. There were there were a lot of expectations, you know. Do
1: you think it was just because they were so surprised? I mean, do you think that was a part of it? Because of the sound of the band, it seemed so outlandish that they would get onto a major that they didn't think, you know, this band's going to go onto a major and start writing ballads. I mean, there was definitely some of that with Girls Against Boys. They got a little bit slick when they went onto a major. You, yeah. you, never, you never got the impression that Brainiac were going to go and write. No, no.
2: <laughs> even, if, even if, for instance... Uh, I mean, okay, I don't want to spoil the, the rest of the show, <laughs> but if you, if, if you think about you know, their last EP for Touch and Go,
1: yeah, well, well, let's let's, let's talk about that We'll yeah. skip by Hiss and Prigs Because I think it's really important to mention Electroshock for President The EP yeah. that came after that It's so much of a departure They do this record I know the band are a little bit uncertain about this EP It was seen as being a bit of Tim's Pet project He wanted to do something really lo-fi Self-produced um, It's a lot of people's favourites And I have to say, it's maybe my favourite I, f- I think it's, it's fucking incredible. Incredible. It's uh,
2: incredible. Yeah, I think
1: it's my favourite Yeah, it's a totally inspired approach. They replaced the drums with a lot of like electronic drums, drum machines. Um, they tried to do it I mean they were I think they were following the kind of self produced style of guided by voices, but it's way more modern than that. Um yeah, so I mean, the band have some slightly mixed feelings about it. It was sort of recorded and given to Jim O'Rourke, the sort of underground legend, to sort of like, here you go, Jim. Can you can you try and turn this into something, please? Um, and I think he'd said that he would rather, in future, that they would work with him from the start, that they would get better results. But it did turn into something really special, and I, I just think doing something like that when you're on the brink of a major label deal, when you're apparently getting phone calls one day from Rick Rubin wanting to produce you phone calls the next day about going on tour with Rage Against the Fucking Machine you know, massive, massive shows and you go and take this massive gamble with your career by doing something that sounds almost nothing like your band I mean, I know they say that they wanted it to try and sound consistent, but it, it's so different <laughs> so wildly different, yet the results are really strong to the extent that Trent Reznor was referring to it when he was in the studio. I mean, it is worth saying, before we talk about idiot tracks and that as well, that the band, I think, they've admitted that they probably would have gravitated in that direction. Um, supposedly they'd had conversations with him in the later days of it. They had written some new songs, but they felt that there was almost certainly going to be a move. Towards something that was a bit closer to that That it wasn't going to be quite so rattly And punk and garage anymore That it was going to be something a bit more electronic Um, By the way it is also interesting as well that One of the reasons that Tim got into those electronics In the first place is because there was like This massive explosion of um, What would you call it? Electro-funk Maybe in the 70s and 80s And (laughs) that had led to all these Moogs sitting in pawn shops In in Ohio uh, Because there was bands were out of there that got quite big Like a band called Roger and Zap um, or Naco Throw thumbs up. And so Tim had gone round these thrift stores and charity shops just picking up all these mugs. and that's how they ended up incorporating a lot of this electronics in the first place. But yeah, they they supposedly said it was very likely they were going to move in that direction if they did land on a major label. So it would have been interesting to, to, to see how that way ended, but it's a fucking brilliant EP. I mean, oh, released just prior to Tim's car accident. I mean, I do think as well, bands like Les Savvy Five who took... Uh, who incorporated electronics into the indie format took a lot from this. Um, but I mean, even just, I mean, it, it kicks off in such fucking brilliant style with fresh new eyes, The loads of sequence are in, it's really malevolent. And it's got a kind of slightly post industrial vibe, that song. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, it's cool, And The Flash Ram the second track, I mean, it's, mm. I hate, you know, I grew up hating like Duran Duran because they were like, in, in Italy, there was this like youth movement called Padinari, where like, Following these bands like Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet, you know, in the '80s. So, so the alternative move was like, like growing up, loving underground music. I I hated Duran Duran, you know, and the stuff. But and Flash Ram, the second track on this EP by Brainiac, is the most Duran Duran sounding track I've ever heard from an underground band ever, and I love it. <laughs> They made me like Duran Duran, Duran kind of like new wavy sounds. You know, I mean it's brilliant. It's such a good song. Like you,
1: you, you, know, you know, this track really, really sounds like it set the template for the band Trans Am. Absolutely,
2: the, the the whole '80s revival starts here with this EP. Like it's mm-hmm. the beginning of these sounds. I didn't hear these sounds since '85, '84. I mean, I I come from that age, you know. I was there, you know. And this this was the, the first time where these sounds were properly brought back, and done well, and done maybe better than, than back then. You know, this is this is like this is like amazing. Like, yeah.
1: you know, I think I think it's interesting because, as you said earlier on, they, the what they took from the eighties wasn't like the safe options. It wasn't exactly. The sort of che- cheesy stuff. I mean, between Fashion Five Hundred, which is like this full on cutting edge electro. <laughs> Or My Beloved which is more harsh experimental noise and then Mr Fingers which has almost got a breakbeat in it I know how it feels when I need a disaster to know A magic
4: hand smacks me in
1: And the, and has this line that sounds like like again a bit like Beck, but then even more so than that. I mean, it's it's a really really gutsy record. And as I say, it's not an album, so it doesn't qualify in the context of this particular episode. But it's possibly my favourite. I think it's the thing by them that I'll give the most repeated listens. I think it's a brilliant piece of work.
2: Yeah, absolutely, it's amazing. I I reviewed it for uh, for a magazine because I was working for a for a music magazine back then and uh, I remember <laughs> giving one of my most exalted reviews ever uh, to this, you know, and uh, no, it, it's great. I mean, uh, and it's uh, it's a shame because everybody was waiting for, I mean, everybody, <laughs> a lot of us were waiting for uh, what was, was going to happen uh, next for them.
1: But Yeah, but unfortunately what happened next was that Tim got in a fatal yeah. car accident. Um We don't don't want to dwell on it And we had this conversation with Andy Falkus Last week about how you don't want somebody's death To define their career And I don't think there's any danger of that with Brainiac But... Um, it was a you know a single car accident, supposedly uh, Tim had bought this Mercedes, a green Mercedes that he was totally stoked about um, he'd actually been showing it to someone and they'd noticed that the parts of the Mercedes were really rusted out and what it seems had happened was that Tim when he'd been driving the car had been slowly accumulating carbon monoxide in his system and then on that kind of final night of his life he had uh, just passed a certain point in the blood saturation he passed out the car hit a pole it was apparently a horrendous horrendous crash, the worst that the the officer in the scene had ever seen and he didn't stand a chance Um, and that was him, that was him dead and in the film you see the bandmates trying to like describe their complete disbelief, you know, getting phone calls from their sisters saying are you watching the news and things and them not realising it was the same Tim Taylor and things it's it's fascinating and so incredibly sudden and the fact that it happened on the periphery of that, that breakthrough is just, yeah it's, pretty, it, it's a stunning story I mean No rhyme or reason to it I guess But uh, Yeah so that Unfortunately the follow up To that never happened they, they did do Some reunion shows They'd actually I think the reunion show The first one they ever did Which was in Dayton was, was actually supposed to be Two of the members Doing their like High school band reunion And then the headliners Who were a hardcore band For this fundraiser had some personal tragedy of their own that forced them to pull out and they had a week's notice and so the other members had phoned Juan and Juan had said, let's just fucking do it. So he got on a plane and flew out to Dayton and that was Brainiac playing a a reunion, I think it was in 2014, after you know nearly nearly two decades um, they, they initially built it as Will Eat Anything because Will Eat Anything was one of their ri- original sort of like working titles Yeah yeah uh, the, the venue was apparently 75 capacity officially and there were more than 300 people in it so uh yeah uh, as me and Dave can probably imagine the headaches that arose for that in advance, but those are also some of the most fucking amazing shows you could ever, ever go and see. But yeah, nothing nothing else was uh, ever released. But let's fucking talk a wee bit about Hiss and Prigs.
2: Yeah, yeah, the legendary third album. I mean, uh, well, another of those albums, I mean, after Side Superstar, I think this is what kind, kind of defines uh, and uh, is... If both sides superstar had consolidated the sound of Brainiac, you know, like presented this kind of nightmarish and at the same time very, very somehow endearing, a kind of kind of sonic sonic uh, concoction. I don't know how to call it. Uh, this one. Was the one that, that perfected it? I mean, I mean, I, I, I remember when it, when it came out. It was such a weird thing. I mean, it was such. Uh, nobody really knew what to do with it because everybody realized. I mean, when I was, I mean, among my friends, among the people who were listening to this stuff, uh, that this was a great album.
4: Put your face
2: Uh, but it was so different. I mean, it was such a a unique beast that it was so hard to locate it. You know, within the within the scene. You, you, you remember that in '96 you had the explosion of uh, uh, post rock and uh, you know, this band's going on and noodling with guitars for ages. Or on the other hand, you had all this post-grungey things going on. And
1: uh, uh, Dave, when was the first record album? Uh, 94 <laughs> 94, yeah, because Corn were onto life is Peachy by that point as well. Like the music, <laughs> the music scene at that time, it's it's crazy to imagine it. But you yeah. know, Corn, what Corn were a real thing on MTV already. No, absolutely, uh, yeah, yeah.
2: No, metal, yeah, yeah, of course, Corn. But uh, on, the, on the other hand, this this one was such a award in itself, you know, and at the same time, was well, so much of the times, was so contemporary. Uh, it was very hard, like, to to capture it. I mean, to capture. To, to really assess it, you know, uh, for what it was, which is a masterpiece, in my, in my, in my opinion. And, uh, and very much like uh, Bonsai Superstar, it, it switches from, from, maybe maybe even more than Bonsai Superstar, because you get this very uh, sonically daring moments, uh, uh, which uh, immediately turn into these fantastic like melodies or, or like a super catchy garage divoish uh, tunes you know um, so it's it's this this it is this game between like kind of Almost scaring the listener and and uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and uh, the second of thirty seconds after you're lis- you're punching the air because you know there's this fantastic riff and this melody yeah. and this chorus I mean it's 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 really unsettling and uh, to this day I've been listening to this one for one thousand times you know or maybe one thousand times a year <laughs> and to this day it still surprises me I mean there's moments where I still get you know okay okay this it's, it's still you know catches me uh, unprepared.
1: Yeah. Feral, I, I'm not doing it sequentially, but I think that one of the great points to jump into this record is uh, Vincent, come on down. Yeah,
4: yeah,
1: or okay. V1NC3NTCOM3. Um, on down. I mean, the album title and the, the the band's name at this point is written with a lot of numbers on it. We'll just, yeah. you know, we're not going to go down that road. But Vincent Come On Down is such a hooky, catchy, brilliant summary of the formula of the band. You know, it's a point where I can hear your own band cut. I can hear that kind of, like, buoyant, garagey sound, but you can also hear a lot of the post-hardcore in it. It walks a very, very good, fine line. It's got bits of anti-rock in it. Um, it's a definite inspiration. Now, I hadn't realised this until deep into this album But the Icarus line, the first album they brought out Mono is so hugely indebted to to not just Brainiac, but this particular record. Uh, But Vincent Come On Down is just a brilliant example how you can write indie rock, but also make people dance.
2: Exactly. I think about the Blood Brothers, for instance, you know, the 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 Blood Brothers, I
4: think. (laughs) The
2: clearly you know you see many moments especially um from the second and third album i mean you can you can really hear brainiac there you know and especially is in pricks uh or uh, for instance another another one that's pretty incredible to me is i am a cracked machine you know the,
1: the, 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 final, track, yeah. the final track i am a cracked machine
4: My possession I guarantee You
0: cannot get to me. That's my favourite song On the album for sure Like, it's,
3: Yeah that's a total beast It's
0: kind of The vocoder effect Is kind of annoying But it actually really works It's, it's Yeah a whole anti- It's like almost disco punky In a lot of ways man It's Yeah um, I love I love I love the part Where his voice becomes Completely clean And it's just screaming And then the weird The weird vocal comes back in It's just a little, really fun song actually Yeah. I love that song. Yeah,
2: it's like you know, it's like if Fred fresner didn't go the baroque way. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It, it, because because it's really, it's kind of realizing a lot of the promises that uh, 9 inch nails have been um, making <laughs> yeah. with their early you know, records.
1: I think a really good, a really obvious comparison for this album as well would be what it would do for At The Drive-In. And, I mean, you see, and Cedric Bixler doesn't hide, uh, I don't think Omar Rodriguez has is, is, is hidden it either in interviews, uh, how much he admires this band and their fusion of those different genres. Um, I think it's like, Hot Seat Can't Sit Down, the sixth track in it. Yeah. has a, you know, it's really gonzo indie stuff. The vocals in it are mega loose as well. There's a really sort of, like, boozy way that he, do, he does his singing in it. But the guitars, the cacophony approach, it really reminds me of, like, the Via era of At The Drive-In. And it also really, you know, that that unfussy, dissonant, bad tuning thing they do, like, not playing perfectly placed chords. You know, when you watch the likes of At The Drive-In on... Um, Jules Holland you, you see that same attitude That same lack of You know Concern You know It's all about the energy It's not about the precision uh, And I think it's it, it sets in motion A lot of different things Like that
2: yeah, that's one of the few ways, in my opinion In which you can still play rock and roll music, basically And still make it interesting, you know And uh, they show the way to a lot of yeah. bands
1: I mean, I think I think that that stomp that bands like yours have captured And bands like, you know, the Stooges Right down to the Rolling Stones and that That thing of, like, almost like a, a Winkle Picker stomping on a stage You know, you can imagine that to that, that song But then they've got things like, and this little piggy you can't win. What do you think about that? You can't win. They've got almost an Nirvana chorus in totally that song. Yeah, cool. I've actually heard
0: Yeah, it's got a real, a real grunge yeah. vibe in a lot of places. This song,
1: yeah, brilliant chorus. And then in the fifth track, strong. You know, it's got, like, screams in the background and it almost sounds like a comedy interpretation of something off the downward spiral. I mean, it's genuinely quite dark, mm-hmm. but delivered in a way that's sort of a bit tongue-in-cheek on Lake Trent Reznor, clearly. Um, I, there's so many fascinating moments on it. I mean, where else could we look at? I mean, you've got Indian Poker Part 2, which is just a load of fucking nonsense. <laughs> Um, I think an interesting track in particular is track twelve, Nothing Ever Changes. That was actually recorded by Steve Albini mm. in his basement on Todd Trainer's drum kit. And and I know that uh, is it Tyler was said it's just this was known as the great drum album amongst the members of the band because the drum sound that they got in it. I think actually the guy that donated the drums to the band for the recording was related to somebody in Van Halen, and and he, he he basically turned up with all these like hard shell cases full of like the most amazing drums and then the other you know and then they also used Todd Trainer's kit as well so they said it was just a joy the sounds that they got out of these this equipment so I mean there's so many interesting points that I would say as well I want to drop the names of some weird European bands that I think have tried to synthesise some of what Brainiac were doing like uh, Deus in some points of their career but also the Belgian band Millionaire ended up working with Josh Holm in a couple of, uh, on at least one record um, there's a track in this called Beekeeper's Maxim and in that track you can really hear moments of like, almost like wait for it, Prince <laughs> elements of that Prince vibe, but then mixed with like, again Scott McLeod Girls Against Boys the, the weird vocals through chorus pedals bands like Millionaire for me are some of the best examples of, of taking that uh, taking that mixture of influences and, and developing it. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, as we said, the footprint of Brainiac across the music scene, not just from this album, but I think, as you say, Ferruccio, this is a particularly strong example of it in their, in their canon, um, is astonishing. It has to be either this... or or Bonsai Superstar, clearly, Um, I know that the difference between this and Bonsai was that Bonsai was really, they went in, they recorded, that was it, that was a record. This, they had a full demoing process, they had a full pre-production process that they didn't get with the other one, and that the tones and things, as a result of having better equipment, for example, donated to them, just really benefited the record in the long term, made it that little bit more punchy and a little bit more listenable and easy on the ears. I would probably agree with you. I'd probably side with this. Although I think Bonsai has some of the most astonishing moments. I mean, uh, you know, I already mentioned uh, Fucking With The Altimeter, which I think has to be one of the most important songs. But I mean, definitely, I mean, this record for me, it's a shoe in man. It's it's brilliant, yeah. Yeah,
2: it's, it's the one that I have listened to the most. Uh, also, you know, so I'm... I'm uh, it really connects with, with with the time when we were uh, touring with a few noise bands from from the us so you know it was a time when when you know there was a uh, this record was like permeated <laughs> the atmosphere and so um, that's why I, I'm so connected to it and also because I think that uh, the extremes, on this album on Instant Pricks they're more focused than on Bonsai Superstar like the pop things are like working great and the noise things are working great and uh, they stick out very distinctively. Whether Bonsai Superstar is perhaps more cohesive uh, as, as an effort, uh, but um, maybe it doesn't have the peaks that he's in pre I mean, I mean, in general. I mean, I'm generalizing because they're both fantastic albums. But... Uh, uh, I'm trying to find the reasons why I, t- I turn to um, Hiss and Prigs more than, than Bonsai Superstar.
1: I really think Bonsai misses a track like Vincent Come On Down. Exactly. It, it misses that fulcrum, that, that accessible fulcrum. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, for me, I'm, I
3: was a newbie to Brainiac altogether and I was hooked in more by Hiss and Prigs. Yeah, like Vincent Come On Down and, and stuff like that. It's those hooks that drew me back more than bonsai superstar but i mean overall i was just drawn in by how sort of madly diverse it all is and i was trying to define it succinctly and i was like all right it's like devo meets nirvana incesticide meets maybe like the anarchist part of sam 69 by ministry (laughs) and then meets a less polished version of 80s matchbox beeline disaster
1: yep good example
3: and that's great Because th- yeah All four of those things Are good things yeah, <laughs> so. yeah.
1: That's that's interesting I didn't even think of them But you're right man Totally Absolutely I'm sure they're huge fans So yeah I, Great choice Mark Um,
0: I like this album a lot I, I, I was completely new To this band as well uh, I actually think I spent more time With their first
1: album uh, Than I did any other one You know can I just say, weirdly, that makes sense, though because I think their first album does align more naturally. If I think about your taste in music, the, yeah, it the, totally the first album—it's
3: definitely a punkier, mm-hmm. like more straightforward, and just like you, Mark, you're yeah. more straightforward. <laughs>
0: I'll try, simpler <laughs> man. But uh, there's a lot of—I th- mean, I don't. Don't get me wrong. I don't think this album's perfect. Kiss uh, me, you jacked-up jerk, and seventy-kilogram man. A picture of number one.
4: Is a stupid a human...
0: Two songs that completely pass me by every time I listen mm-hmm. to this record, but mm-hmm. everything else is just fucking weird and great. I mean, you, you obviously hit the Prince buzzer, Chris, but there's a lot of funk, <laughs> there's a lot of funk bass on this album, you know. Yeah, um, he, he was a big fan apparently. I mean, the Prince's name comes up a number of times in the interviews that I've have seen. He's a fantastic bass player, you know. Um, and I can totally see why. let was signed with signing this band. Like, I get there's the same record label though that's the signing of Snails, right? Mm-hmm. It makes sense. It would be really and helmet, it makes yeah. sense if any label would do it would
3: be them, you know. Um, yeah, that all all mid nineties alt rock in America is booming and. They were just looking for a different take on that alt rock and I mean this was as different as you I mean they
1: they were throwing money at everything, Mm -hmm. but I do think it is fair to say that with Brainiac, if you were canny, you would maybe think, you know, it's like it's like spotting a young football player. You're like, there's something there that I think they could come out with, something truly special that that is like becomes like a big hook. You know, you could imagine them developing into that sort of like early Yeah, 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 like dance indie Electro crossover thing mm-hmm. With the You know Bigger studios Bigger producers Maybe a wee bit older You know And that's not to dismiss Their early career Which I think is t- Terrific But you, you could see What an enterprising A&R guy Would maybe see in them Absolutely
0: yeah, I mean they gave Melvins a, 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 a <laughs> major label record Do you know what I mean? So it's, it's obviously not unprecedented. Nonsense. But all they would need really is two singles, right? And they're so close to it in this album. Vincent coming down we've mentioned is like uh, it was a single. And I think uh, there was another one as well. I can't remember which one it was. I think was it the Vulgar Trade? It was maybe a single. There was another single that they released a video on this album as well. But there's a couple of songs that are so close to it, you can actually see them getting there really quickly without even having to try too hard. You know uh, and it's it, the thing that the allure of this record for me is is finding the cracks where something nice and polished comes through but then it just gets like swallowed in horror sometimes it is pure horror you know <laughs> yeah. Um and i love that about it I, I like that they just they don't really take any prisoners like you get when you listen to a brainiac album no matter which one it is you get the full brainiac experience there's no fucking around
1: <laughs> you know yeah it looks pretty unanimous for it, too. I think I think you've been successful in your mission without oh, too thanks. much resistance, man.
2: I hope that the listeners will will, will explore Bradiac because you know uh, they will find a lot of the rules of what's what's been going on in the last twenty five years or thirty years in music. I mean because Really, they've been they've been predating a lot of stuff. And, and, and I really agree with what you just said, you know. Well, I always wondered about this interest by the major labels. But, yeah, they, 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 I guess you're right. They, they kind of looked like the kind of band that... Uh, they were so unpredictable and so kind of genius, like that they might come up, come out with uh, an incredible single or an incredible hook out of no, out of this kind of you know this mass of sounds and influences and uh, you know yeah 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 I I, I guess that that that's, that's one of the reasons and I think also uh, Trent Reznor uh, he e must have spoken to to Interscope a lot about them
1: mm-hmm. possibly you know, that's very yeah. very good point well uh, there's only one other question remaining and that's did you manage to find a way to nexus this band to william gibson the creator oh of man. cyberpunk <laughs> <laughs> this?
3: The, this is the first time we're seeing nexus tonight will it be the last what do they have in store this for is us not good for-
4: am I here you're in the nexus this is the nexus for you
2: this is what you want <laughs> <laughs> oh you, you catching me I'm prepared
1: on this I'm sorry Fero, I, can, I, can, I can tell you bottled it but uh, yeah William Gibson uh, as chosen by a uh, Mr. Kenny Bonella, one of our least respectable listeners, um, <laughs> but uh, and sub and, and 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 patron. Yeah, maybe he's a bit more respectable than <laughs> I originally thought. But uh, did you guys do okay? Who wants to go first? Yeah, I'll go first. Okay. Um, so Bradyak,
0: we from Dayton, Ohio, which is obviously, as we said, the same size. The breed doesn't care to buy voices and all that. Also from Dayton, Ohio, it's Martin Sheen.
1: Oh really?
0: Yeah. There you go. Um, he starred in a little film you've probably heard of it called Apocalypse Now. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, that film was like torture for like Francis Ford Coppola. Um, and there's a documentary called Hearts of Darkness, which is film, which his wife started filming during the filming of Apocalypse Now, and turned into like a huge thing. Um, and genuinely, that film's also amazing. It's fucking great. That yeah, it's a really good documentary. Uh, in that film, George Lucas actually pops up and talks about. You know Francis Ford Coppola and the filmmaking process and that kind of shit. Um, he also pops up in a film called Side by Side, which is like a film about the sort of film and digital workflow processes, and kind of talks about how the post production like world of film has really changed a lot and how like the evolution of that has actually really helped innovate a lot of filmmaking. Um, he talks in that about obviously things that he's done both in the old good films and the, the later. Lots of good films, <laughs> which <laughs> are all digital. Um, and that film was actually produced by Keanu Reeves, who's also in that film. Um, oh. And he also played Johnny Mnemonic. Uh, Johnny Manomic. Mnemonic. 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 Yeah. Mnemonic. Mnemonic. Yeah. Johnny Mnemonic, uh, which is first a book by William Gibson and was then turned into a film, which Gibson wrote as well uh, and was unhappy with the outcome of because a part of the studio fucked it really badly. Um, and just chopped up And made it unwatchable well, and his eyes unwatchable It is a pretty dull film To be fair But I don't know If any of you guys Have also got the Alien 3 thing mm-hmm. William Gibson Yeah he He wrote that Nope he, Well was,
3: I actually I've, I've gone Johnny and Mnemonic But I nearly did Alien 3 Yeah he, he I've not
0: I don't know this Yeah he wrote Alien 3 He wrote a draft of Alien 3 as well um, Oh wow And it was that was later also, it was that was David Fincher's first film, too. And um, so, neither him nor the writer had a particularly good experience on that film. And uh, yeah,
3: because David Fincher eventually like disowned that, and
1: yeah, almost that's a hellish That's yeah. that's, a, that's a slightly unsung film, It's treated more harshly than it deserves. I agree. It's pretty it's pretty well, good for our spin off
3: podcast. We can uh, do Alien 3, absolutely. But
0: the reason yeah. I brought it up is because um, his script for Alien 3 was recently turned into an audiobook and it's on Audible. Uh, as its own kind
3: of thing it's unaudible yeah <laughs> sorry it just sounded like you said it's, it's inaudible you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just mumbled the entire way through it <laughs> it's unaudible <laughs> but yeah that's, that's me uh, yeah so uh, Brainiac Transmissions After Zero is the uh, aforementioned documentary uh, and it was produced by a like, friend of the band, I think, Eric Mahoney. Uh, Eric Mahoney had also he produced a couple of other things, including a Joan Baez documentary and working in TV and as a producer and stuff like that. He's done some other things. Turns out he'd been a, a production assistant on The Wire. Wow. Uh, but he's also he for two episodes he was a production assistant on uh, World's Dumbest Criminals, <laughs> uh, which is on I don't know True TV or something American cable TV, and uh, yeah I mean that's just like twenty minutes of uh, half-witted Id- like idiot criminals getting on camera, yeah, um, and they quite often have um, like guest commentators and uh, uh, hosts. For instance, they have celebrities that have had brushes with the law, such as um, Tonya Harding. Uh, Has she been in uh, trouble? I don't remember. (laughs) Well, yeah. Um, And then also Gary Boosie. Oh, of course, the Boos. So uh, Big Boos and Big Boos... God, in his selected filmography, there's a lot of shit. But from a...
1: I mean, in in 1987, he well. did
3: Lethal Weapon, and then 1990 he did Predator Two, and in 1991 he did Point Break, and then 1992 he did Under Siege. Like that's four classics in a row, right there. Yep. Uh, and in Point Break, of course, he co-starred with uh, Keanu Reeves. Blah blah blah, Johnny mnemonic Blah blah blah.
0: Have you seen uh, Have you seen the pre- Predators, the Shane Black one? Yeah, it's good yeah oh, it's actually quite good it's Gary Busey's son that plays Gary Busey's character son from Predator 2 <laughs> oh.
1: oh nice bit of Weird, bonus thing. trivia there yeah. right uh, Brainiac uh, Brainiac the band is named after a supervillain for the DC comics he was a, a nemesis of Superman he was also a member of the Legion of Doom uh, the Legion of Doom aka the Road Warriors yes. were a, a, a WWF or WWE tag team uh I mean, super, super famous hawk and animal, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, their special move was the Doomsday, Doomsday Device. yep, Device, or, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, the Doomsday Device is probably best known from uh, the Doctor Strangelove, which is, I think, where they got it. But here's an interesting wee sidebar. Uh, the Doomsday Device, in reality, uh, is known as Dead Hand. Mm -hmm. and also like aka perimeter and this was used by the ussr and what it was it was an automatic nuclear response system this immediately brings to mind the likes of like skynet and things like that right but it's an automatic response system that basically didn't need any human authorization uh if a full nuclear strike was launched against the and 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 the, the chain of command was actually eliminated and it was in effect from 1985 onwards um now the The people that invented it said it was supposedly a buffer against hasty decisions since it meant that even if everybody was wiped out, there would be a counter-strike. Um, I'm not necessarily sure that's how the general population would interpret it after like four almost four decades of post-Terminator paranoia. But uh, yeah, the idea was that it would respond with extreme force, but the inventor claims it was there to cool down all the hotheads and extremists. Um, I think one retort to his uh, definition would be the fact that it became known as a fail-deadly. Versus a fail safe, which was that it would default to absolute catastrophe. <laughs> anyway, so the Doctor Strange Love Doomsday Device. Did you know that the original ending of Doctor Strange Love, the movie, Stanley Kubrick's movie, was supposed to be just a giant pie fight? Yeah, uh, yeah. as a, a, yeah, as a metaphor for a nuclear war, right? But supposedly. Peter Sellers was getting a visit from his good pal Spike Milligan who, along with uh, a <laughs> certain Harry Seacombe of <laughs> Songs of Praise, mm-hmm. um, they made up the three members of the Goon Show uh, on BBC Radio. Um, and Spike Milligan apparently suggested this like really black humour uh, ending uh, which is atomic bombs going off accompanied by Vera Lynn's uh, We'll Meet Again. Um, Spike Milligan... Uh, and uh, Was he married multiple times? At least one of his marriages, his best man, was George Martin That's it. I know that's the marriage that led to him having a child uh, George Martin uh, produced a track called Tomorrow Never Knows uh, Which is the final track on Revolver by the Beatles, I believe mm-hmm. And uh, Tomorrow Never Knows was covered in 2010 by a band called The Meat Puppets uh, In uh, collaboration with a woman called Alison Scott Who I'm not familiar with And Meat Puppets... They got their name from Meat Puppets, which were AI prostitutes, the the top level of AI prostitutes, I might add, from the book Neuromancer by William Gibson. Hey, well done. Ding dong. Well done. Great work. <laughs> awesome. Nice one. Nice amazing, one. yeah. Ferro It was a great choice I'm really glad Somebody with Some knowledge of the subject Brought it to the table Because it enabled us To tackle it In a way that I think Was befitting Because You don't want You don't want to fumble A band like Brainiac Because they're really important To a lot of people And they've just got So much importance I think in the 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 indie western canon You know what I mean Mm -hmm. Um, So Great choice man Uh let's I mean, let's see how people react. I think that' will go down quite well though. I think there's a lot of people who will probably be quite happy to see the way they fill in the blanks of the influences behind a lot of the artists that you know have subsequently made, made big moves like at the drive-in, for example. Next week is back to my choice and I am I'm psyched about this one. Uh, Dave I think you're going to have a really good week as well Pharaoh I would encourage you to go and check these guys out just simply because they're absolutely fucking brilliant um, and this is one of the purest examples I think of the remit of this podcast this is a band you are unfortunately very unlikely to have heard of uh, unless you're one of our mates um, but uh, I have chosen the album this is the third album by a band called ABC Shank by the band ABC Shank Watch Uh, Choice, by the way, holy shit. They are from Wexford in Ireland. They've got a trio uh, who had the privilege of putting on a number of times in Scotland. They are criminally underrated, criminally underrated, uh, and in particular this record, which is a fucking stone-cold masterpiece of of the European underground scene. Um, I can't wait to talk about it at length. I'm not going to labour it too much here, but it's going to be a fun week because it's also really fun music and God knows... If the weather here in Scotland won't cooperate, we're going to have to create our own fun somehow. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so it's, just, it's going to be a great week, Farrow. I'm actually I'm going, to, I'm going to send you a link to that film, and I'm going to send you a link to that album because it's terrific. A lot. Uh, it's lovely having you on. I can't wait to get you. Yeah, on the was great. great thank, again. You. Was awesome. thank, thank
2: you, so, thank you for your patience for. For enduring my accent, oh,
3: and
1: <laughs> my great. mistakes. Oh, great, great. Oh, it's
3: cleaner than Chris's <laughs> sterling
1: accent. <Yeah>. <laughs> Much <laughs> more pleasant. No, the de- listeners, the, the listeners love it. I keep getting asked for your phone number, but I'm not, i not, I've not passed it on yet. <laughs> um, okay, guys, that was that was really good. It was educational and enjoyable. How often does that happen? Um, Do yeah, could take could- over from the BBC. <laughs> Someone's got it. Uh, we could in, we could implement an unsung license fee. <laughs> that, that's what we fucking need.
0: That's how we did it. Mm,
1: yeah. Do it against their will. Force them. Yeah, just you send need. send round the bail.
0: We need staff for an MSP next time then, just to make sure that happens. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Take care of yourselves. See you
1: soon. Fero. See you soon. Ciao.
2: Thank you. Well, ciao. You. Ciao tutti. Ciao.